Thank you. Good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Um, my name's Antoinette Latouf. Um, I am the co-founder of Media Diversity Australia, one of the organisations that's partnered um, in hosting these, these events. I'm also a senior journalist at Network 10. Um, before I go along and talk about the structure of this evening and introduce our fabulous guests, I do want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I join you, the Wangle people. I pay my respect to elders past, present and emerging. Now, this series of webinars on diversity in journalism is, is a partnership between the Scanlon Foundation, which is a foundation that aspires to see Australia advance as a welcoming, prosperous and cohesive nation, particularly related to the transition of migrants into Australian society. The Walkley Foundation, which um, you'd probably all be aware, celebrates the very best practice journalism and Media Diversity Australia, which is a not-for-profit organisation that's working towards our news media looking and sounding like our very wonderful and multicultural country. So today's session is about the language and the power of storytelling and how impactful that can be when it's done, when it's done right and respectfully. But conversely, and equally importantly, how detrimental it can be um, on, uh, on diverse communities when it's not done well. Um, there will be two fabulous people um, speaking in the latter half of this session. Um, that's James Button and his guest, Nord Shanino. But before I go into tell you a little bit about uh, these two speakers tonight, um, let me go through a little bit of housekeeping. Um, you just to know, let you know that this uh, is being recorded. This session is being recorded, and it's my, my understanding it will be available online later. Um, everybody should be on mute. Um, Usually at these sorts of events, it's where I tell people where the toilets are, but I'm hoping because you're dialing in from home or your workplace that you've got that sorted. Uh, James and I will chat for about 10 minutes uh, about his experience as a, as a storyteller and a journalist. Uh, then James will interview Nord. Um, and during that discussion between James and Nord's interaction, I encourage people to put any questions in the chat function. Uh, they'll chat for about half an hour. And at the end of that, um, there'll be time. Um, there'll be plenty of time to answer your questions. So uh, please engage. Um, and it doesn't matter how soon you pop that in. I'll be keeping an eye on them and we'll be, we'll be coming back um, to those questions at the rent, at the end of their discussion. And those, that question can be to, uh, to either James Nord or, my, or myself. Um, okay, so I will uh, bring in James Button. Uh, so James is a journalist, speechwriter, editor and policy communications advisor based in Melbourne. I'm, I'm sorry to hear you're based in Melbourne. Um, he's worked for The Age, the Grattan Institute and as a Prime Minister, as a speechwriter for Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, he has won three Walkley Awards for feature writing and written two books, Speechless, A Year in My Father's Business and Comeback, The Fall and Rise of Geelong. Welcome, James. Thanks, Antoinette, and great to be here. Really a pleasure. Uh, so, so, James, in 2020, and for those who aren't aware or haven't seen the content, you participated in a Zoom roundtable with a diverse group of young people who grew up in the Flemington-Kensington Housing Commission flats. Um, and I, I guess what made your content and storytelling so powerful was the openness and willingness of the young people to, to share their stories and their experiences. Um, what made this series a success? What, what enabled their stories and truth to shine? Well, Antoinette, the, the series, um, which was published in, um, by the Scanlon Foundation and in The Guardian um, in July last year, began as a, as a Zoom call um, between about 
12 to 14 young African Australians um, from the high rise flats in various parts of Melbourne, um, in the inner suburbs of, of Melbourne. And look, that first call that we had was really important because it established a basis of trust, I think. Um, what was fascinating to uh, my co-writer on this story and myself, that was my co-writer was Julie Sago, was just how, um, how sort of willing um, the young people were on this, um, on this Zoom call and keen to share their stories, to sort of to step out and speak about their lives growing up in the high-rise flats around Melbourne. And that story was pretty counterintuitive, I think, mm -hmm. for a lot of people. Um, you know, people who haven't grown up in public housing or in high-rise tend to have a certain fixed view of those places, of the high-rise. Um, that view tends to be um, that these are really tough places to live in, not necessarily much fun to live in. Um, and people who live right up against the flats in the, inner, in the inner city might even have that view. But actually, that's not the case. That's not the story that we heard from the, the young people in this Zoom call. They told us a story of, 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 of real allegiance, of, of, of really strong loyalty to the places they grew up in, to the communities they grew up in, in the flats. And that, that was really the basis of, of our story. And it was just, Julie and I were immediately interested. We, we could see straight away that the, 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 if you like, stereotypical view um, mm. was just not right in this case. You mentioned the stereotypical view, and often that's the one that is most, you know, widely broadcast. That can also have a detrimental and silencing effect on those who have been misrepresented to want to correct the record or show a different perspective. Did you encounter that reluctance? And if so, how do you overcome that? Well, in this case, the people, um, the young people we spoke to were not reluctant at all. They really were keen to tell their stories. But you're quite right that um, people who have grown up in the flat sometimes absorb that sense from the wider community that, that to live in the high-rise flats is, um, is to live a kind of lesser, you know, uh, existence in terms of the, the quality of life in the flats. And that, and really, they wanted to say to us, look, we had real community in these places. You know, we, we looked after each other. There was, you know, open spaces where, you know, like 300 kids might be just playing together. We, you never had to look out and call a friend because there was always a friend there. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a real sense of just a, almost like an older Australian life where people just went up to each other in the street mm -hmm. and went in, into each other's houses. That was... That was how people inside the um, the high-rise towers experienced life. So, um, but but at the same time, that people were often aware that people outside did did think that it must be really terrible to live in these places. And I think people on this Zoom call really wanted to say, no, that's not the case. And one of the things you would, would have recognised, um, given your career spanned over two decades, the industry has changed enormously, probably at a at a rate at a faster rate than ever before nuanced and good storytelling and relationship building takes time trust takes time and we know that time is something that journalists have less and less of so I'm interested in the amount of time you had from idea inception to getting this published just to give a bit of a bit of context yeah you're you're absolutely right about all that Antoinette um it, somebody once said about journalism it's the art of arriving too late as quickly as possible <laughs> and you know it, we had more time we were luckier than um 
than, than some day-to-day reporters, perhaps like yourself, you know, are in terms of, of, of media reporting, because we did have um, some weeks to pull this story together and to build our interviews and to go back to people. Um, but what sped it up was that um, the Guardian accepted our piece for publication, but they said, oh, it'll run in about, you know, six weeks when we can get it together. And then the hard lockdown of the high-rise towers happened uh, mm. in the COVID it. And suddenly the Guardian went from, we want it in six weeks to saying we want it tomorrow. Yeah, so, right. So then we had to do, there was a bit of scrambling to do to, to get the copy ready um, in time because it was suddenly highly re- relevant. And mm. you know, we were pleased that we were able to, Julie and I, to tell the story of people who were suddenly in the limelight, perhaps for the first time, you know, and, and we, were, we felt we had a story that through, with their help to tell, a, 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 you know, perhaps a surprising story of life in in the high-rise towers. Oh God, a, a, a six-week, you know, deadline or a six-week six span is yeah. almost unheard of, of in, in, uh, yeah. in modern terms. So, what happens to the art of storytelling? What's lost to both the product and to the community that's being unfairly reported on? Uh, you, you mean when things are re- uh, when, when things when you have to respond to and react um, in a much more timely, you know, out in a few hours. Yes, well, this is where I think, um, you know, the, the, the journalist's art becomes very important. Um, I think that what really counts is um, to try to build, you know, the, we're talking about two, two kinds of journalism here, as you point out. There's the long-form journalism where you actually have time to try to build relationships with people and build trust. And then you have that very sudden journalism, when you might be thrown onto a story to a place you've never been that day to report for TV or radio that evening or for the newspaper the following day. Look, I think the principles are the same, though, at heart. They are about um, being respectful of people, being honest about the process, about how this is going to go, about... um, I. One thing that I, that is important to me is the whole question of if you're writing something, do you show the people mm. you're writing about the copy before it's actually um, published? Um, and that that's a that's a the, the the entire copy or just their grabs? Um, well, in the case of usually just their grabs because I think it's important. Well, it's and often the context around it, so they get yeah. something, they get a sense. I it's something that I've done a lot in my career as a journalist and. Some people say, oh, you shouldn't do that. But I, I've never had, um, it's always been of a benefit for me to do that because you actually get a richer story because the person who's being written about corrects errors. You often, it's so easy to make mistakes when you're hearing mm. stories um, from people for the first time, you know, over a phone or, you know, I come across all, you know, you say it happened on Tuesday, it actually happened on Friday. Yeah, you know, right. Or, or but you, you've, ne- you've never had someone come back and try and, try and retract what they what they have offered I, or what they look, have I, said. Haven't. I I can see that it could happen. Um, and th- then I think the negotiation there is it's, 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 it's like when you're covering public figures, they understand the deal. Yes. If you're reporting on politicians or people in the media a lot, they understand that if you're asking them questions, you've, you've identified yourself as a reporter, um, then whatever they say to you is, is, is public information. But for people who have never been in the media before and may never be in the media again, I do think there are issues around the way that they are reported on that the reporter needs to, as best he or she can, to consider in the time they have, you know, because those errors might be not 
seeming so important to the reporter, but they, they might be very important to the, to the people involved, even if they aren't errors that cause them specific difficulty, everybody likes to have their story told accurately. <laughs> it's just a, you know, and, and there's a feeling of, well, yeah, that's what I said, you know? And so um, I, I understand that in very pressured deadlines, media deadlines, this can be, this can be difficult, um, but we have phones, you know, and um, most people, uh, most people stick in my experience, they stick with what they've said because it's what they believe. And um, our job as reporters is really to help them in a way to tell their story, you know, as, as best they can, to put their argument as best they can. So, you know, I've never really had a, a difficulty with it. In fact, I, I would have, I'd say that it's been a benefit overall mm. to my reporting. Thank Thank you for those little, you know, pearls of wisdom. Um, I'll hand over to you in just a moment. But before I do, I'm going to introduce Noor Shanino. He's a young leader in his community and is passionate about the development and progress of young people. Noor has various skills and experience in community development space and has volunteered and worked in the community sector for more than a decade. He co is the co-founder of the Ubuntu Project. It's a grassroots service provider with, which represents African-Australian community, aiming to close the gap between true community needs and services provided. So, James, I'll hand over to you. Um, I know you have a bit you want to share with those who've joined us online. Uh, then there'll be a discussion with Nord, and please keep your questions um, keep your questions coming through the chat function. We'll get to them in about, uh, about half an hour. Thanks very much, Antoinette. I'm, uh, we'll, we'll throw to Nora in a second, but just before we do, I might just um, make a couple of further points, and then Nora and I, as Antoinette said, we'll have a discussion. I think um, uh, it's worth remembering that in the past um, 25 years, 4 million people have migrated to Australia. That's about one in six Australians has come to this country in the past 25 years. It's a huge change. And what is striking about that change to me is it's a massive, uh, it's a massive story in, for media. It's a massive story in, in the politics of Australia and the, and, the sort of, and the coming together of Australia as a community. Over time, um, in the past, if you look at the first waves of post-war migration, uh, migrants often came to the inner, inner suburbs of cities. These days, more and more, because the inner, city, inner suburbs are so expensive, um, people often move to the fringe of big cities. And um, the risk there is because they're living on the fringe, those communities are not covered. The stories that come out of those communities are not told because media is concentrated in the inner cities and, and all our power centres are concentrated in the inner cities. So I think it's um, incumbent on journalists, on media organisations as much as possible to, to get out there, to get into, um, to develop a wider sense of the Australian community and, and of our big cities and of our regions as well. In the case of this particular story that Antoinette's been talking about that, that I wrote with Julie Sago, um, this was about the flats, the, the high rise flats. And, and yet there, there was that same, if you like, that sort of membrane between the, the flats as communities and, and the, the larger communities around them. And, and what was, a, what, what was a, um, very, very interesting and a privilege to do in this case was to be able to talk to people who had grown up in those flats. 
Um, the, the question of how to report, as Antoinette rightly said, we had time to build those re relationships. Um, I think that the question of, of respect for the people you're writing about applies to anybody, if you're a reporter, um, from, from whatever background they come from. But it, it is about trying to build trust. And, and if you're interested in a particular, as a, as a journalist, if you're interested in, a, in writing about a particular community or a particular area, try to build relationships in the good times when before there might be some conflict that gets reported on. See if you can find the people who, who, who come from that community and get to know them, try to take people out for coffee, just to build connections that will stand you in good stead. And I, I certainly think this happened um, once uh, the, the, there was the hard lockdown applied on the Flemington and Kensington flats um, in July last year. Uh, I was able to talk to Noor, who I'd got to know, for example, through, through the reporting we had done. And, and I think um, it might be worth bringing up Noor now, um, Marcus, because one of the things that uh, was just really, really helpful in this process, as a journalist, you're always looking for storytellers, people who know how to tell stories, who, who have a really interesting perspective. And Noor is one of those people. He, um, I, I asked him for an hour interview and we ended up talking for three and a half hours one Saturday afternoon. And, and everything he said was, was interesting. And I'm going to say this about you, Nord, because you, you won't say it about yourself, but he, he just brings a really rich perspective to, um, to Australian life because he, um, he, he grew up in an Eritrean family that had lived in, in Libya, um, where his father had, had worked under the Gaddafi regime, not worked for them, but had worked in that society where, where that regime was in power and he... he he, he, he suffered un, under that regime. They were then refugees. Norda grew up in Sweden. So he had, until he was 13, he had the experience of, of living in a totally different society and then, and then of coming to Australia. And what's really interesting is that Norda's thinking spans the generation of his father's generation. And the next, next, he's 34, 35, sorry to reveal your age, no. <laughs> but um, the generation that's coming after. And those perspectives are very different. And he's, he, he is uh, someone who, who in his work, in his work every day uh, with Ubuntu Project, with his, um, with his close colleague Ahmed Dini, is, he's someone who spans that bridge, who bridges the, those two communities, but also the communities, um, some of the minority communities and the wider Australian society. So, Nora, I think we should just chat about, um, I've talked a bit about my experience as a journalist. Why don't you tell us a bit about how you see media from where you stand? Like, what has your experience of, you know, growing up in, in Melbourne, what has your experience um, of media been? And how has that changed over time? And then you might just take us to the question of how you dealt with media during the whole lockdown period, um, the, the, the COVID-19 you know, hard lockdown of the flats. Absolutely. Um, first of all, thank you everyone for having me and giving me this opportunity and um, those kind words, um, James, and luckily this is recorded now so I can use that. Um, yeah, so like James said, um, childhood born in the Middle East, um, and uh, lived in Sweden till I was young. So my childhood, I don't remember. I went to Sweden at almost two years old or something like that. Um, and then moved to Australia at a very young age. Um, in terms of 
my first experience or my experiences with media, I would look at it as there's probably three parts to it. I've been obviously thinking about this over the past week. Um, initially, it goes back to September 11. So I'm Muslim and I was about maybe 14, 15 years old um, when that happened. And so I literally went from just one of the kids at school playing footy and basketball at lunchtime to all of these really difficult questions um, about my faith, about suicide bombings, about you know radicalization. And I had no answers because we didn't sit around the dining room table and discuss that. And you know, I'd never been to a mosque where that was discussed. So we had no answers about that. And where the media played the role, obviously, um, going back to so long ago when I was so much younger, was just, it was being discussed all around the world and rightfully so at the time. Um, it was sort of a really key factor at that time. Um, and what ended up happening was just, I would see panels and sort of news shows and things like that, talking about Muslims and Muslims in the West. And this was happening in Europe and North America, where I've got lots of family. And a lot of times you didn't have Muslims on the panels. You'd have a security expert, you'd have someone from government or politics, you would have people from media. Um, and that was really difficult because it was just a stereotype. It was a certain perspective. It was one narrative, one side of the story um, that was being told. And for a lot of people, I think, you know, obviously it was something that's coming out of fear, but for us, it wasn't this discussion that was being had. I'll give you a quick example. There was a show had a similar format to uh, Q and A. So it was a question and a panel and they would kind of discuss it. And I remember till now, I mean, it's 20 years ago. I remember what the question was and it was, is Islam compatible with the West? And I'm sure for the producers and everyone on the show, obviously it was an important topic to discuss um, and talk about. But to me as a 15 year old, boy, it was my place in Australia that was being discussed. It was all very personal to me. It was about my family, my community. Um, and without anyone there to represent our voices, not being heard. And, and also, I think just for a lot of people to try to understand the context, just the heightened fear of being labeled a terrorist or sympathizer or any of those things. And I remember my family and all of my friends, parents sitting us down and saying, don't even discuss it, don't even, with your friends, not even at home, it was just this heightened fear. Um, and it was a continuation sort of thing. And I remember just a quick example, when the Burke Street incident happened, um, I was sitting with a group of 12, 13 year old boys and somebody ran in and said, oh, there's something happened in the city. It was some sort of an attack in Burke Street. And I remember this 12 year old kid, before I processed what happened, he said, I hope they're not Muslims that did the attack. That was the first thing that came into his mind. And I remember I asked him why, and he's like, oh, I don't want to be all over the news. And that's what he said. I don't want to be all over the news because whenever they were talking about his faith, that's how we saw it. Um, and so that was kind of left, I think, a bitter taste in a lot of people's mouths. Um, and I think for a long time as a community, our stance for a lot of us was we don't want to be on the news. We don't want to be spoken about. We just want to be left alone. It wasn't even about representation. And that's something I saw around the plebiscite vote in Australia, I met with a couple of, um, it was by coincidence, a couple of leaders of a faith, um, and they were setting up sort of all this, an organization or group of all different faith leaders. And they actually said to me, we decided to not go to the Muslims first, assuming that they would just be on board. Um, and they kind of spoke to a lot of different faith leaders. And when they ended up speaking to the Muslim ones, no one would engage. No one wanted to be on the news. No one wanted to, you know, support or even, oppose or even be part of the conversation. So that's kind of the first part of my engagement. So can I interrupt you there? Which plebiscite was on that? Um, which one? Same-sex marriage? Yeah, right. Gotcha. Yeah. 
Um, and the second one, which was a lot more pleasant, was actually with you, James, um, in this whole story. Um, and I think just the biggest thing on that was I didn't know James. And I think had I just received an email saying we're writing this piece, I don't know if I would have engaged with that. Um, but I think kind of, you know, knowing the Scanlon Foundation and having a lot of trust for um, Anthias uh, Hancock, the CEO over there, um, I kind of thought, well, that would at least get him the benefit of the doubt. Um, and right off the bat, and I assume we'll have a conversation about it, I realized, okay, I can see what the intentions are and things like that. Um, and like he's rightfully said, right after that, um, there was a hard lockdown at Flemington and North Melbourne. Um, and I don't think I've said this to you, James, but I think if I didn't have that positive experience with journalists just before it, I think the way I would have dealt with media during the hard lockdown would have been really different. So that positive experience kind of allowed me to, okay, feel a bit more comfortable. Um, and we did have somebody who had media background that was kind of walking us through it all and things like that. I'm not Tell sure. Us about that. <laughs> That's great, Noel. Tell us a bit more about that time because it was a tense time, wasn't it? There was, uh, you know, and I think you maybe talk us a bit through the generational differences, right? So there were, I, I think a lot of the younger people in the high-rise towers would have had a different view about what was going on compared to older people. And um, younger people also much more media savvy and kind of aware of the impacts media have. So tell us about what was quite a tense time. How did you navigate that period? How did you and Ahmed Dini, your, um, your partner at Ubuntu, how did you navigate that, that time? Because yes. you, were right, you were right between the groups, weren't you? You were kind of ferrying messages and, and you were getting a lot of media calls and talking to the DHHS, the Department of Health and Human Services, the police, lots of different people. Yeah, well, I think, first of all, we were one of many, obviously. Yeah. Um, I think what a lot of people don't realise is when the lockdown happened, the response from community was not a planned or a structured one. It was very organic. A lot of people came, wanted to help out we realized, oh, you're really good at something and it's been going well for, you know, it went well yesterday, so you just kind of lead that. Um, in terms of for Ahmed and myself navigating media and things like that, like I said, we were very fortunate that we had an amazing, talented young woman um, who had media background, had worked for a broadcaster um, and was actually teaching journalism at that time. She's doing something slightly different now. Um, and she was there to be able to kind of say, yep, that's a great publication. Uh, the way that person's kind of written about the community before is a bit problematic. Um, and even to the point that, she, you know, we, we'd sit down in the mornings and we'd have our talking points for the day and say, here's the three things we're talking about. And that's the three things we're talking about. We're not taking any other questions. Um, when there was something to kind of, when something did happen, there wasn't so many things that were happening. But when things happened, we'd actually sit down and write a statement and have a bunch of volunteers. There wasn't from any one organization having a look at it and saying, okay, great. Yeah, we sign off on it. Um, we set up a central email that was overseen by that young lady. Um, and anyone that would contact us would say, send an email to here and someone will respond to you, which, I mean, you know, all, everyone here is in journalism and like, but that's how you do it. We never had that experience. And if it wasn't for, I mean, there was other people involved, but that specific person was so important. Social media was a huge factor. That's where young people, I think, really came in. And they were kind of posting their own things, posting their stories, pictures of things. Um, a lot of journalists were contacting them, even ourselves. It wasn't even, it was emails and things like that, but it was mainly Instagram. That's where a lot of journalists were going, contacting people. Um, so we actually organized an impromptu, just very quick, I think it went for one or two hours, media training. And we kind of told everyone, you live in the towers, you can speak to whoever you want, tell your story as you want. No one can tell you what you should and shouldn't do 
but here are some people that have got some experience that could potentially contribute to that. And on the intergenerational gap, first generation immigrants, especially if you come as um, refugees or asylum seekers, it's just, there's always a generational gap between every generation, but it's just so massive because you have parents that literally grew up on a whole, in a whole different world. Everything works completely different. Um, a lot of those countries they come from, like where I come from, there is no free media. So it's, there isn't a lot of experience you can go back to. And even with the lockdown, again, like you said, my father lived, you know, kind of, you know, under Gaddafi's rule for quite a while. And what was normal was very different than Australia, which you mentioned some examples of that in the story. And, you know, they would come in and say, well, yeah, it's, you know, it's, I think everyone acknowledged that it was a health crisis. Everyone understood, you know, even if not the way it was done, but some people, a lot of the parents kind of said, well, it's better than people dying, you know? And for younger people, it was very nuanced because they understand how it works. And for them, it was a lot more about, okay, maybe we can, you know, we don't have all the information to say whether the lockdown was required or not, but why is it automatically policing? Why weren't health professionals sitting? And so their questions were a lot more nuanced. Their questions was a lot more about, well, you've put us in the lockdowns. What did you put in place? What were the risk assessments? What logistics were put in place? Um, you know, and the Ombudsman report did say that, you know, the head of DHS didn't even know till 15 minutes before the press conference. So there was nothing like that put in place. Um, and that kind of is another contributing factor to when you're talking about new communities immigrating. It's, you're not dealing with just one individual. They're part of a family and a part of a community. And these are cultures where a lot of times that comes first, that comes before the individual. And that's something that sometimes is really important to take into account um, when reporting on certain communities, and I'm sure you know it's similar and, and very different with different communities. I, I think that's you've raised a really important point there. Communities are very diverse, and one person might be a spokesperson for one part of the community, but not for another. And I, I think the more work that journalists can do to to try to um, you know uncover the complexity of those relationships, the better. And I. I, I totally take your point about social media and, and the, the role of social media, Instagram, in, in a kind of crisis event like that. I still think, and this is the old-fashioned journalist in me, there's no substitute for getting out there and getting face-to-face -face with people and asking them questions. And um, because, you know, people get very fiery on social media as well, but when you get face-to-face, -face, you can actually, you can talk and, and explore the, the nuances of situations so much better. And, and I, think, uh, it, I think it's important that journalists explain to people as well um, that the pressures they're under, that, that you might talk to someone from an hour and they might use one quote or stories can be um, cut, uh, headlines written by different people. I think it's really useful for journalists to explain those things to interview subjects um, in, this, in this process. And you, know, you must have seen or in the coverage I, I'm guessing here, but you probably saw some really good coverage and some poor coverage. And you must have been struck by the kind of diversity of practice, even amongst journalists. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, at the time of the lockdown, we didn't have time to watch the coverage. Yeah. Um, my colleague Ahmed was actually in the towers, so he was in the lockdown. Yeah. So he was doing a lot more of the sort of live coverage and the TV stuff and things like that. I was more underground. Um, but even with him, like people would come up a couple of weeks later and say, oh, we saw you on channel, whatever. And I'm like, I don't, did I? I don't know. There was a camera in my face a couple of times. 
But looking back, absolutely, we've seen that happen before. We've been, you know, um, in the media before about even the local paper. Um, and definitely, you know, it's, I think what happens is, and it's really important for journalists because everyone gets caught up in their little bubble. I was part of um, a media, I think, roundtable or workshop, you can call it. And they were talking about the diversity in media and the left and the right, conservative and liberal. And I was saying, a lot of young people in a lot of communities don't, it's the media is the media. It's a generalization. It's not fair. Um, and I think a lot of times kind of even sort of setting the scene with that, explaining who you are. I get journalists I know nothing about. I haven't really got the time to research them all, just sending, saying, hey, I want to write on X, Y, Z and let me know if you're interested, you know. And I think if you can send like, here's something similar that I've written before. And, you know, because there are people that do want to speak to the media, but there's still that fear and hesitation. Um, and it does a lot of damage even internally because within the community, you know, there is still that mindset going back to 20 years ago where it's, if you're in the news, you know, all, all media is bad media, you know, that still exists. And I think it only takes, you know, 10 good experience, one bad experience, everyone remembers that but one bad experience. But like you said, if you can explain the process, I didn't know that a lot of times the headlines are made written by somebody else. Like I was just mind boggling to me that there are editors that will cut things out and I had no experience and learning all of those things makes you realize like, oh, they're also sort of in a difficult position. And I did use the example recently to you, James, where I said, imagine if someone came to me, that's how I look at it. Someone came to me and said, write an article on white middle-aged Christian women. I would have no clue where to start or who to talk to or how to do it. And it's not an easy job. Um, like you kind of already mentioned with Antoinette, that, you know, if you're in news where there's quick turnaround, online publications, like something happens, if it's not up in the next five minutes, you're too late. Um, so it is really difficult, but the point you made about during the good times, creating those relationships, and again, a lot of sort of communities that we're talking about, diverse community, trust is a huge factor, and it's not about institutional trust, it's about individuals, like, oh, I know James, you know, kind of what happened with you, which is, I know Scanlon Foundation, they know James, you know, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely, and I, and I think... Um... You know, I think that, as you say, those things can be built over time. And um, I, I see that um, Anthea has just made a comment about the, the Guardian serialising this series, and they were interested in publishing it um, well before the lockdown, because I think they felt strongly that here was a community that nobody ever um, reports on. And um, it, unless there's something bad, you know, maybe there's been a crime or something like that has happened, and then... You know, so, so that is not a particularly, you know, uh, coming off some sort of trouble is not a particularly um, uh, representative or, or, um, or, you know, or rich way of describing, describing a community. So I think The Guardian did want to, to do that. And it, it, it makes me think about the relationship between reporters reporting on a community and trying to encourage the community itself to speak. And I think both um, there's a role for both. I think that I think we need to get more voices, say from your community, Nor, where, where say there's been a um, something like the hard lockdown in the flats. We we would like to see it would be great to have say people speaking directly in their own words, you know, words not necessarily reported on by journalists in op-ed pieces or to camera, you know, and then have the reporting as well. I think there's a place for both to really to get a much more diverse picture of what is going on in Australia today. And I think, you know, media is changing and all these things, but, you know, like 
Spider-Man's uncle told him, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah, and I think media has a big place. Journalists have a big place. And, you know, I'm a history buff. And, you know, when people look back at this time, like this is how they're going to judge what the world was like, what the society was like. It's the words that journalists write. And it's the photos that photographers take and the documentaries that filmmakers make. Um, and it's really, really important. And it does sort of penetrate and get through um, and, you know, I guess individual journalists don't have a lot of power, but you, you know, it's part of the collective and mm. it's not easy, you know, if we, if we just want to type up our, whatever it is, 500 words and that's our focus, then, you know, um, but it, like you said, it, it does take extra work. It does take more time. And to be honest with you, you know, it's just that trust barrier, but people, and I said it earlier, James, young people want to tell their story. Young people want to express um, themselves they do want to paint a, bit, a picture an accurate picture not just a better picture um you know and that was our interest in getting involved and i was myself sort of in, very interested in and i don't know how much you had to do with it but with the young people that were in the panel um you know so i think it is a lot of work but i think it's very important it's crucial work you know i think you know representation and multiculturalism are words that we use all the time but really thinking about it and how it impacts people like when i was that 15 year old boy and even with this article I've had so many people like my own father who sat down there and English is not easy for him and read the whole thing through and he's not somebody who says a lot and he said oh I read that article and I said how much he said the whole thing which meant a lot and then I said what do you think and he said it's really important it's important for Australia to know who we are and then he said because that's the only way we can ever become Australians by learning of each other and accepting each other and being seen as yeah we're different but we're all Australians at the end of the day. That's fantastic Norrin. Before I hand to you Antoinette I just want to follow up what you just said and say that above all I'd encourage everybody to engage. We've got to engage and have the conversations with each other and there will be you know misunderstandings and and people, people will feel misrepresented at times but but I think openness to 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 um, to the conversation both in life in general and in the media is just vital. And uh, nor you you obviously I think you would agree that obviously I'm sure you've had some road bumps along the way, but overall engagement has been a good strategy for for you overall. I I think I'm right in saying that. Oh, absolutely. I think it's even road bumps. I think it's people have the right intentions. People yeah. are. Most people are good people and it's been mainly positive, which is really great. Um, thank you so much for the discussion so far and people are obviously enjoying it and sending their questions through so much so that somebody, one of their questions is, when can we get a recording? Um, they like it so much they want to watch it again. Um, so the recordings will be sent out um, at the conclusion of all of the sessions. Um, so... Um, it will come um, in your inbox so you can uh, watch it again. Um, another question that's come through, which is really important, I think, is um, how crucial is the gendered lens when we are looking and reporting on multicultural communities? Because it can be quite a different experience, Norton, you, you, would, you would know. Um, the experiences of a, of, a, of a Muslim woman can be quite different for various reasons, from the physical to, to the social. Um, how important do you think that it is to ensure that all of that is covered? That's for me. Yes, it is not. Yeah. Well, I think it's crucial. It's absolutely crucial. Um, like you said, it's just, it's so varied. I think that if we're going to talk about where majority of stereotypes lay, it's not just with 
you know communities of different heritage but it's usually with the women in those communities mm. you know, and a quick example we're doing i'm not going to get into it, but a whole bunch of work and we had young women filming they were doing a little act um and we had all these lawyers and things there and they were it was about domestic violence and in the act the father was act working but the mother controlled all the money and at the end all the lawyers were confused and they said why did you have the mother the woman that wasn't working being the one controlling the money and they just looked and said that's how it works in our communities what are you talking about like you know mm-hmm. our mothers run the house they make the final decisions and they were just really taken back and i think just gems like that really allow us to understand each other um i think with gender there's just it's crucial like i don't even know how to describe it better than that um it's really important and to be absolutely frank and honest a lot of times within those communities women's voices are sometimes not allowed the same platform not allowed the same place i know even when it comes to youth workers there are so many more youth workers than myself in our community doing like all this work that i look up to but they're not given the platform within the community that i'm given and that's just how unfortunately the way that it is and i think this is where journalism can play or media more broadly can play a big role in even breaking down barriers that exist within those communities um and again i think you know stereotypes like i said a lot of times it's you know when you talk about muslims you talk about africans it's all the women they must be oppressed they must not have this they must not have that um and oh. i think just meaning the nuance of that is really crucial and can can i perhaps suggest it could be uh, a shared responsibility that of course it's up to a journalist to ensure that various perspectives because there's not one indigenous perspective or one black perspective or one arab perspective but also when somebody gets approached to then ask you know one of the things i do whether it's um to speak at an event who else is involved are you speaking to someone who's x y and z um that it's a responsibility where you can perhaps amplify women in your community and journalists can ask the right questions to try and locate more voices um another question for you nord um i'm i'm assuming this is coming from someone from a diverse community is how can we get our stories out there um because no doubt you know there there is a a bit of a growing trend towards um constructive journalism you know journalism that's not just reactive but um journalism that proposes solutions and so if you think you're sitting on a bit of a gem and your community has these stories what's your advice being the community side of how to get that across the line and into the media um i think again in going back to the previous point also apart from gender is the age difference um and i think with younger people it's a lot more content creation there's a lot more of them doing podcasts there's a lot more of them doing filmmaking um animation that's a lot of the methods we're using to communicate with them um i think with older people like again and i think it's to be honest i think the lockdown was a really good example of where people were even i, I remember people saying a week in saying oh i can't believe the media hasn't turned on us they were actually really surprised they were expecting that they were going to be attacked and kind of some of the things Pauline Hansen was saying they were expecting it from mainstream media um and so i think really to get the word out and a lot of times what i'll do and i actually did it yesterday is just give james a call and say james how does this work and how does that work and how can we do all of these kind of things so it's well, establishing those relationships when topics aren't hot necessarily so that yeah, you can exactly. you can draw on them yeah and i think a lot of times that also can lead to resentment where there is this sense i've heard from young people saying well they didn't care about us yesterday now that something's happened something bad's happened now they're here so that sometimes actually is very negative um so i think coming during the good times is really important reaching out is really important and i think what's really crucial also is and this is something james did really wisely in the the, the group chat that we had 
was that he didn't come in with a set of 10 questions and I want my 10 questions answered and, you know, I'm out. Not that all journalists mm. do that, but sometimes it comes off the wrong way and kind of a lot more open-ended, a lot more of saying, well, what's important to you? What stories do you want to tell? Coming from mm. that, I think really makes people a lot more comfortable. And I try to do, I work as a facilitator and run workshops and we try to do that, to open-ended questions, yeah. see what they come up with. Um, and we have some sort of an idea, but sometimes it ends up going places we never thought of ourselves. And, and James, someone's interested in that in that struggle because it's not industry standard and there isn't a, um, a one way or right way of doing it when it comes to running grabs or quotes past um, interviewees. What sort of pushback have you received from either your colleagues or your editor? And how did you respond as to, you know, how did you make your case that it's important that you get their approval and feedback? I've never had any pushback at all. Um, oh, really? No, none whatsoever. I, I, um, I had a, uh, a, a mentor when I was younger who did it, and he, he always said it was a good practice for him, and I, and I followed that. I, I, um, look, when I was a news reporter, I don't think I would have done it all the time if I was in a, um, you know, if it was a very uh, rushed situation where I had to get copy out. But I, I did often try to do it as much as possible within the constraints of, um, mm. of time uh, with people who are not public figures. I, I, I wouldn't do it with public figures. Yeah, sure. Um, people understand the game. But I, I, I think the thing is people often forget um, if you're in a long conversation with someone and you're saying, tell me your story about, um, you know, tell me about your life here in this place. After an hour, they've forgotten that you're a reporter. You're just chatting as two people, you know. Yeah. And they could be telling you all sorts of um, intimate things, personal things, things that might actually uh, expose them later to, to problems, you know. And I do think there's a duty of care there to 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 say mm. to just say, look, you know, um, this is what you said to me. Um, is it okay? Um, and Nord, I'll get your perspective. Did that help make you more comfortable with with James's journalism? Well, I just smiled at the last point he made because I wasn't expecting to get a copy, to be honest. I didn't even yeah. think about that. Um, and like you said, after an hour, you forget that they're a journalist. Well, we spoke for three and a half hours and it went from mm. footy to our fathers to yeah. everywhere. And when I read the copy, I was like, oh, I can't believe I put that person's name in there. And it wasn't anything like major or things I don't want to get into, but it was little things that I knew, like some people wouldn't be uncomfortable with, little things in there that I know would rub certain people the wrong way. Um, but to be honest, that really sort of did make me a lot more confident because I knew what was happening. I knew what was being written. I knew how things were being represented. And, you know, I've had other experiences afterwards and I've never had anyone send me a copy or anything like that. It's usually, you know, we'll, I, I usually ask, like, can you send me a copy once it's published um, mm -hmm. myself? But definitely I think it's really crucial. But I think also, again, it probably goes back to the point of long film, short film. If it's, yes, of course. In the news today or if you've got you yeah. know potentially six weeks to work on it it does make a difference but i think it's really crucial and especially when you consider coming from this place of distrust or kind of uncomfortable with media i think that would go a long way towards um building trust and a very valid question has come through how can we do or expect inclusive reporting when it's coming from newsrooms where there's no diversity um maybe i'll jump on on that one first Antoinette I um so I haven't been a working journalist now for about 
10 years in a newsroom. Okay. So I'm not, I'm not across, uh, and Antoinette, you'll be better placed in some ways to answer that question in terms of diversity, as you see it. Obviously we've got further to go. Um, and uh, <clears throat> is there no diversity? I, I'm, I, I think, I think we're at very little. Yeah, so we've got a lot further to go, um, and you know it's just really interesting to think about the Age newspaper where I used to work. It's um, it's hired its first Indigenous reporter covering Indigenous uh, issues just in the last in recent times, and that's uh, to be applauded. And and yet, as I say, there is there is uh, we need to broaden the space of voices in this country. There is no doubt, and. Um, I do believe that is happening, um, but I, you know, it's not, it's by no means mm. nowhere near a finished, a finished process. So I, 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 what I'm saying there is I don't think it's static. I think there is a... Yeah, a, no, there is. There, there, there is change and change will, will take time. And I guess what I can add to this is, you know, often um, a pushback to that kind of question would be, well, if you're a good journalist and a trained journalist, surely you can approach any subject matter where you know and you can apply your journalistic principles of you know objectivity and fairness and balance and i don't believe that's the full story in the way you also you know all stories are comprehensively told so james you know you're obviously a very skilled multi walkley award winning journo and while i don't question your ability to tell stories it's more about your community reach or insights into certain um into certain issues, your lived experience, your contacts book, who you went to school with, where you grew up, what you know, they're all the sorts of things that you don't get from journalism school. Um, and so I, I guess while things are changing to answer the audience member's question, there are journalists who want to do better, who may not be diverse themselves, and there are ways that they can better in, enrich and broaden their journalism. Um, and there's some of the ways that James answered, you know, forge those relationships, build trust, um, engage a bunch of community voices. There isn't one Muslim voice or one Indigenous voice, and it's quite easy for the media to, uh, to keep engaging that one person with the one perspective that often doesn't represent the whole community. Um, just as a little practical tool, Media Diversity Australia has an expert database on our website. And so it's people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. They're not journos, but they're lawyers and domestic violence advocates and economists who just so happen to be perhaps Indian or um, speak Mandarin. And I think it it's also about normalising what expertise is and that expertise comes in different colours, shapes and sizes. And it's not always, you know, a, a white guy in a suit from a sandstone university who's an expert. Um, and so I guess that's a, in, in the shorter term a way um, newsrooms and the media can better reflect the expertise and the lived experiences of multicultural Australia. Um, I just jump in and say, I totally yeah. agree with you there. And I, I just wanted to say one thing on top of um, what you just said, which is there, there may be times when um, it is better for an outsider to cover a community dispute. There, there, there might be times, say, um, say to groups within the Indigenous community, there's a land claim and, and that somebody from inside that community could play some role in, in, in writing something, but often it can be a lot of pressure to be actually, if, you're, if you know the people involved, if you're expected to cover, cover it in a certain mm. way or to take a certain side. So if I were an editor, I absolutely would be wanting to work hard to expand the, the number of voices, but I would sometimes wanna say, 
better and that person doesn't have to be they could be from any background it doesn't you know but but somebody perhaps outside a community mm. uh, can actually um you know provided they they do the sort of things we've discussed tonight they can actually it's it's almost it's easier to yeah of course and you know and sometimes you don't, you know, I grew up in Western Sydney and, you know, my parents are Lebanese and they came as refugees. And sometimes I didn't always want to do the stories about Western Sydney and I didn't always want to do stories about um, Middle Eastern youth. And, um, you know, and so there, there's also that danger of p- pigeonholing certain stories um, and also for, you know, offered for Indigenous people. It comes with a lot of trauma. Um, and navigating trauma from within the community, so it's a it's a difficult it's a difficult um, balancing act. But to your point, having a range of journos in the newsroom, and you can go, okay, you know what, James, you're better place to cover this, or Antoinette will send you off to this. Uh, Nord, a question for you: Do you have any advice to Muslim journalists who are starting off? Oh God, journalist. Um, <laughs> well, just quickly on the previous point. Yes, sure. On the other side of that, where. People, it happens with women. I think it happens a lot with women and it happens a lot with people, you know, colour or different ethnic backgrounds. Once they get into the newsroom, they're expected to kind of do what every other journalist does. You know, and I've heard stories of being said, well, this is how we write it here. Well, that defeats the purpose of having a multicultural staff in the first place. Um, And so I've heard stories of people getting jobs in mainstream news and then feeling really sort of boxed in and not allowed to express themselves. So I think just having people that look different in the newsroom, that is not the end all be all obviously, which no one's um, suggesting that it is, but I think then it's also benefiting from that. Um, yeah, and it also it also puts a lot of pressure on that person who might be 23 um, yeah. and good intentions and highly, you know, highly intelligent and motivated to go, go in there and change the culture of the newsroom. Um, it takes time and it's not until people have ed- real editorial influence and power at news director levels, board levels, that things really, executive producer levels, that things really um, begin to shift. Um, as for the current question, uh, Muslim journalists starting up, I mean, I'm not a journalist, I don't work in that world, but just as a person um, coming into an industry where I've been part of the minority, I guess you could say, is be assertive, you know, kind of speak up, you know, you're in there, you've got a privilege, you've got an opportunity, um, you know, I assume there's some sort of brainstorming sessions, you know, really speak up, you know, I think for a lot of times, and I've seen this with friends that have gone into the police force, I've seen it with friends going into other industries where they are extreme minorities, and a lot of times that's a bit overwhelming and you want to kind of, you end up in a situation where you might be, you know, you don't want to stand out. You don't want to point yourself out, especially if you're very young, you're just getting started. So it's, I mean, you're in there, you've got an opportunity, you know, speak up, you know, and, and you know, it's going to be a process. You're not going to come in on day one, like you kind of said, Antoinette, and change everything and change how media has worked in this country for 130 years or whatever it is. Um, but it's just going in and, you know, be assertive, don't, you know, you've got an opportunity and potentially you can open a door for so many other people that come in after you um, and you've got a platform. But again, you're a journalist. It's not all on your shoulders as well. And if, you know, like you said, they don't always want to write about just their community, just their experience. They want to have a range of experiences. That's fine as well. You know, but it's the most important thing. I think we're at a point where it's about representation. We want to have people in the room and then it's, you know, Again, we want the people we have in there also being diverse because our communities also are diverse. Absolutely. And I I would just add to that, um, to the person who sent that question through, um, you know, 
find allies in the space. There are more. There are more people. It might not be in your newsroom. It might be in a, in a sister publication or another newsroom. Media Diversity Australia is, is a good place for that, whether it's, you know, online support, going to networking events. When you feel that it's not only you experiencing certain things or unsure how to navigate this space, it helps. And part of the reason we started it um, is we all had at one point in our experience recognised what it felt like being the only brown person in a newsroom. Um, and so just having mentors, having people just to text on a WhatsApp group and have a bit of a vent, just so you don't feel you're alone. That's probably my advice to somebody who's starting out who comes from a minority group. Um, we have a, a question, and this is a really good one, um, actually, uh, for both of you. Um, in my writing for a professional magazine, this person tries to include stories from a diverse range of groups, and the intention is to show diversity of the profession and give as many people possible a voice but I sometimes worry it could look like tokenism. How can that be avoided? And this is often the, you know, the, the pushback either, either by those trying to support diversity initiatives or those who are diverse themselves to feel that their inclusion um, or attempts at inclusion are going to be dismissed as tokenistic. Um, James, do you have any, any thoughts here? Um, yeah, it's a good question, Antoinette. I, I think, um, you know, I, I think... It sort of depends really what the story is about to some extent as well. And other people that you're seeking comment from um, uh, always go obviously for the most people who are most relevant to the story. I think within that, if you can then ensure, you know, diversity of voices, that's great and work towards that. But sometimes the question of diversity of voices will be more germane to the story than in at other times. And I, I think as a practice, it's a good thing to do. Mm. But, I, but I think it's particularly what Noor was saying. I think Noor really described it very importantly before when he, when he talked about his experience of September the 11th and, and was feeling talked about without having a chance to participate in that conversation. I think that's when it becomes really crucial that, that a wider range of voices are, are heard um, you know, openly and in good faith. And um, so, so I think that's when that issue of the diversity becomes really, really central. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Noor, did you have anything to add to that? Um, just kind of to say, um, yeah, I think it's, it's really important. And I think the criticism of tokenism is going to be there. Um, yeah. And at the end of the day, I mean, you know your intentions, um, the best and sometimes this change takes a while there might be things that appear to be taken yeah. today but you know if we keep doing it it becomes normal um, and that's what the goal is right we want to normalize it having you know a Muslim woman write an article having you know person of color hosting a show should not be a thing it should just be a normal mm. thing we're not going to get there until we just see it regularly we see it all the time um, and I think really importantly but also I think when it becomes tokenism is where you just want someone that looks different but kind of tell the same story. Yeah, that's that's really important. And I think I think your point about um, intention is really important. So if your intention really is to amplify a range of voices, um, I think that's crucial. If sometimes you miss the mark, and sometimes we do. You know, I try, I did a story, you know, even though I'm a diversity advocate, I did a story on disability, on um, ADHD, and I didn't realise the language I was using was um, quite uh, either dismissive or simplistic. My intentions were great. 
Um, but what I did with the feedback, I got a whole bunch of people, uh, quite a few were angry at Twitter going, this, you know, it was simplified us, it, you know, it was not nuanced and I was mortified. Uh, but I think what's telling is what you do next. Um, and it's going, okay, what did I do wrong? How can I do better? Um, and so I would say to that magazine writer, do what you're doing with your intentions. And if someone feels that they've been only slotted in and treated tokenistically, I think we're, we're all just learning and growing and change takes time and it'll make people uncomfortable, including yourself, um, until, as you say, Nord, um, having a, a Black person anchor a program is, is not a novel idea. It just, it just becomes the norm. Um, I have another question. What role does effective inclusive reporting have on social cohesion in Australia? Short answer, a lot. Um, James, I'll, I'll, I'll yeah. pass over to you for the longer answer. Absolutely, because um, uh, the, the more that, uh, and it sort of goes to Noah's point um, just, just then about, you know, the people who, who present the news, the more that the voices um, of the fullest range of people in this country are heard in the media, the more we start to see ourselves as that very uh, diverse community. Uh, and that does take time, um, but it's a, it's, it's a critical. Media is such a big part of the way we come to understand ourselves beyond the people we, we know through our own you know, small networks of friends and family. Um, we, we come to know the community through media. And so, so how do we come to see ourselves in the fullness of, um, of, our, of our Australianness, you know, with all its diversity? Media plays a vital role. So, yes, to, to the question is a, a big role. Uh, Nord? Uh, what's bigger than big? You know? yeah. um, <laughs> it plays a massive role. But I think what's important in that question is, a part of that question is effective, right? Inclusive reporting. And I think a lot of times that's the difference between tokenism and being real. Um, and I think a lot of times, and James, we've spoken about this, where we oversimplify things, where a lot of times when you're talking about people of color, you'll hear, you know, refugees. And I had a 16-year-old the other day that read something and he said to me, at what point do we stop being refugees? Mm. When does that actually stop? When is that how they describe our community? Why is that the one thing that they go through? And look, sometimes it's relevant to the article, it's relevant to the point. Um, you know, and it's there for a purpose, but I think this shorthand is an issue. Um, and, you know, a lot of times, and again, James, we spoke about this recently, it's not just the people that write the worst things, but it, it gets, it builds up to it. You know, it's like with everything else, there's a build up period, things become normalized, you get one step closer, one step closer, mm -hmm. and always using, you know, refugee or immigrants and things like that in an article where it's not relevant. Yes. It kind of opens the door for the next level. Can I just add to that, um, Antoinette? I, I think Nora is, is right there. And I, I think sometimes people use the word refugee with good intent because they, they want to show that this community has struggles, you know. But, but I actually think the, the difficulty that you're pointing to, Nora, is that um, communities that come from refugee backgrounds are often incredibly resilient by virtue of the refugee experience. And that, that is something that is lost I think if there's too much focus on refugee as a term of vulnerability so sometimes that term will be used with good intent but I think it tends to uh, pigeonhole and uh, and to kind of uh, um, miss the, the the real sort of strengths that exist in the, in, in those communities and so, so there's probably a better way to 
to describe communities, especially if you've been here for 20 years or something, at what point, as you say, is that still a, is, is that community still a refugee community? Um, another question, um, and pr probably actually to both of you, um, any tips on sourcing reliable, neutral translators? So if a story could be, you know, contentious within a community, being able to engage somebody who can help you with language barriers, who doesn't bring um, their own personal views to relaying the information. I've got no experience in this realm, so I, I'm not sure if you do, James. I, I've got none either. I, yeah. it's, a, it's a great question. Uh, I just don't have the, it just comes down to networks, I think. And, uh, and you might try someone and see how, see how, how it goes. You know, I, I don't have a better answer than that. Often young people whose who's, you know, first language is English can help, I think, with older people in the community. What do you think, Noor? I think exactly right. I think young people, a lot of them struggle to speak their mother tongue. English is their main language. So, you know, a lot of times, you know, when we say young people, like, I mean, you know, a lot of this, especially specifically talking about our communities, especially like East African community, being in this country for 30 years, you have 25, 28 year olds born mm. in the country, um, you know, people like my father, you know, the grammar might be a bit off and they might struggle with certain points and things like that, but they can have a conversation, they can read the news. Um, and I think depending on the languages, there are a lot of services that you can access. Um, a lot of, you know, just a simple example is in Victoria is the Multicultural Commission, who on a daily basis works with multicultural communities. They've got a whole network that you can access into um, and get into. Then obviously it becomes more challenging when it's those really like um, language groups that are, you know, very few numbers. You don't have a lot of options in that. Um, and a lot of times young children, you know, I know from the age of, eight, nine, we were translating for our parents, you know, so they're actually really good at it. Um, you know, and I think that in terms of the question, um, in terms of biasness, a lot of them is just, they just want to explain what their parents are trying to say. They're trying to explain what the older person is trying to get across to you. Um, I think you will struggle to speak to older people anyway, but I think you know, majority of the community, I'd say 75% are born or grew up in this country, went to school in this country. So it is a challenge, but it's, I think it's going to be a very rare challenge. And I think it would also depend on the complexity. So, so people will sometimes come to me in the newsroom and say, can you help us, you know, uh, we need this grab from the Egyptian president saying blah, 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 and I can locate it. But I certainly don't have the skills to adequately transcribe and translate something. And so I think when somebody requires that level, you need to go to an accredited translator who isn't just bilingual, um, but can actually do verbatim word for word. And, you know, I, I'm not sure what those accreditations are, but you can find them and request that. So that would, that would, be, um, that would be my recommendation in, in ensuring things aren't lost in translation. Somebody has said, would you guys be keen on collaborating on an article together? Amazing panel, panel tonight. I mean, if someone wants to commission us, <laughs> we, can, we can certainly talk about it. Um, Another one is cultural communities carry a huge burden to tell their story. Is the onus on the cultural community to educate the wider community or is it, is it a responsibility of the wider community? Sorry, I'm just trying to get to the bottom. Of the wider community to learn and listen or share that burden. So is the onus on the cultural community to educate the wider community or is it a responsibility of the wider community to learn and listen or share that burden? Nord, do you have any thoughts on that? I think the reality is um, it should be on both sides, kind of meet in the middle, because if someone doesn't want to learn about your culture or your community, no matter what you do, it's not going to get through. 
Um, you know, and at the end of the day, if you wanted to learn about my community, I would have to participate in that. Um, so I think it's somewhere in the middle. And I think where a lot of the challenges happen is exactly in that. Um, you have people, I, I would do this thing when I was started working at what's now Woolworths, used to be Safeway and I'd work in different stores and I'd actually go in and say, oh, my name's Noor and I start working with someone and I would just say, I'm Muslim because it was all over the news. And I would <laughs> ask them, I'd say, have you ever met or worked with or spoken to a Muslim or someone from Africa? And a lot of times people eventually after, you know, goes on, they'll, you know, they'll say, no. And I say, oh my God, this is your chance. Ask me all your questions you want. And you would see how it start off very sort of, you know, they don't want to say anything. And then we'll get to the real questions. And every single time that happened, they would come back with more questions because all of a sudden, you know, they're getting answers to things that are all over the news and all over the place. Um, you know, I was going to do a, um, it was an anti-racism campaign and they wanted me to go in and speak. And I said, those of you in Melbourne will understand, if you're going to take me to a library in Brunswick or all these multicultural areas, I don't see the purpose. I'm like, take me to an RSL in rural Victoria. I would love to speak to them, you know, because my mindset is I want to give them the opportunity. And if they do want to learn, it's there. It only benefits all of us as Australians and Victorians and whatnot. But I think on the other hand, you know, if you're part of, I guess, white Australia, you do have a responsibility because, you know, we're here, we're not going anywhere. We're part of Australia. Like, you know, James, you said earlier on over 4 million in the last 25 years, your children are going to go to school with our children and we're all going to be part of each other's lives. And if we want to, you know, multiculturalism, cohesion, whatever label you want to put on it, at the end of the day, it makes us all um, a better, it makes it Australia a better country. So I think ideally you'd want to meet in the middle where if they want to learn, you know, and again, I don't want people jumping on Google and learning about my culture. I'd rather them have a conversation or learn about my faith or any of those things. Um, so, yeah, that's, I guess, my answer. Do you get um, sometimes discouraged to engage with the media? I mean, I know that there um, can be quite, quite a lot of hostility, particularly from groups that have been marginalised by the media. Yes, I do. That, that, I'll be honest. Um, a lot of them, because you get 10 of them in one day about the exact same thing. You know, ten of what? Ten of what? Requests. Ten journals? Yeah, you know, it's ten requests. Um, like I said, it's not much information there, so it's like, well, I need to research every single one of them and look up the articles before I can make an informed decision. And so, a lot of times, I probably won't even respond. Or you know, if it's somebody I know, or I'll reach out, like that young lady that I knew, and I'll say, hey, I got this request. What do you think? Um, you know, so again, having those connections is crucial to opening more doors for journalists. Um, you know so yeah there are times where I'm, I'm very hesitant I'll be honest depends on the publication depends on the broadcaster um, that is a huge factor mm. uh, for myself James, so yes I think uh, look I just I'm going to agree with Nora I think it, I think the onus is on is on both sides um, uh, Antoinette, I just, if I can, I just want to pick up the question from Jorge um, Jordan that, that he, he has asked about, um, which is in the chat, about um, a lot of people consuming um, news. Yes, I saw that. Overseas. Describing great, my father. Yeah. It, it, it's a great question. And I, I think, uh, and this, Noor, you, you, you talked about this a lot too, that in the move from when you were a teenager to today, you've seen the rise of the online world and the the way in which for young people, the political framework is global today rather than just inside Australia. Now that's an inevitable process of the of online. Um, I, I think you, 
you felt that it had some downsides um, to it in terms of people, you, you were, I think, feeling that it was important that people understood the realities of the place they lived in on a day-to-day -day basis. And then I think you said to me, we came to understand our world firstly as the high rise in Flemington and then a larger collection of high rises around that and then the city more, more broadly and we, those concentric circles going out. Whereas today, young people who are online a lot might understand more about the world globally than their own community. So Jorge, to answer your question as best I can, we just have to really push great Australian storytelling as much as we can so that people can understand what's going on here in this place and how it might be different from what's happening in the United States, for example, a country which we're extremely influenced by, but which we are not the same as. And you know, the reality here is different. Nor, what do you think? Um, I agree with that. I think, you know, I mean, um, my father is a bit all right, but like 99%, it's, they've got the little setup gadget and it's the news oh, yeah. from the other side of the world. Yeah. They fully understand the language and they've still got family back there. So it's really crucial. A lot of them are sending money every month. So they're heavily involved in what's happening back wherever home might be. Um, and I think for young people, yeah, I think I think for all of us, right? Our world was our home, then it's your street, then it's your neighborhood. That's just how you grow up and then it expands and expands. But I see now, like even with my nephews and nieces, it starts internationally, um, especially I think like the young people I work with, especially people of sort of African or black color, um, a lot of what's happening in England, what's happening in America, what's mm. happening in Canada has a huge influence on them. Um, and, I, you know, I remember we did, me and Ahmed were sitting with a bunch of young people and we asked them who the prime minister of Australia was and the premier. And they had no clue. I think now with COVID and the daily briefings and Googling the numbers every day, they're learning a lot of those things. Um, you know, but it's really crucial. It's really important. And I think they're living in a global world, you know, and I think that they need to know what's happening around the world, what happens on the other side of the world, what somebody says in England or somebody does or a shooting that happens in America is important. <laughs> Um, over here but at the same time it's got to be a balance I think I might add to that that um, in one in some ways it's generational that often you know first first wave migrants or refugees like my father who's you know fixated on his his satellite channels um, and but I think with the next generation there's a real um, business case that's not being capitalized on so when we talk about the need for diversity, it's not all that it's not just the touchy feely stuff that we've been talking about when it comes to social cohesion and multiculturalism and nuance. It's also a business model. Your audience is changing, and Australian media isn't catering to its entire audience. And it's problematic in a digital global uh, world where if you're not getting the kind of content that resonates with you, you've got social media, you've got United States content, UK content or, con you know, content from um, your country of origin. Um, and so I guess that's what frustrates me, that it's not only bad for multiculturalism and social cohesion, the entire business case is being overlooked, that clicks and eyeballs, you're missing out on those because you think you think your audience is still pre, you know, white Australia policy in the, in the 60s and it's evolved and it's changed and people are impatient. Um, they're not as loyal. We're just not as loyal. We're not as loyal to our banks as we once were. We're not as loyal to, you know, we don't have as much faith in institutions. Um, so I think um, it's up to not only um, the individuals from diverse backgrounds to try and better engage with the, with the Australian media. The Australian media needs to do a better job of media, you know, of 
curating and putting forward content that actually connects with them and, and, and reflects their interests and their world experiences. Um, we have, oh, this is a good question. Just wondering, Nord, what are some of the most irritating questions you are commonly asked? Um, God, well, I think a lot of the media I've done with James was great. It, was a, it wasn't a lot of questions. He just let me talk for three and a half hours. Um, I'm trying to think of a really bad one. Give you us know, a few. Give us your top three hits. Oh, God, I don't even think I have top three. But you know what it is? It's a lot of times where it's what's behind it and they're trying to direct you towards a certain way you know so they'll say something like oh tell us you know like i've had people ask me about women in my community that's yeah. actually that's my number one you know and i'll say i can give you a few phone numbers you can talk to them like i don't think you should be asking me you know um about that um also it's the sort of they want the conclusive answers like what does your community think of x yeah um, <laughs> there's thousands upon tens of thousands and what community are you talking about the muslim community the ones that came here as refugees you're talking about public housing you're talking about people of color i'm part of so many different communities which one are you referring to which one are you talking about and is the one where they'll get in contact with us and we work mainly with public housing residents and people of african heritage and they don't want to use the word african or black you know and it's just this vague you know um and sometimes i say oh so you're talking about African, African Australians, you know, and they'll say, well, you know, I'll say, well, let's have the conversation. Like, you're not contacting me to talk about white people. You're not contacting me to talk about, you know, Christians or whatever it might be. So I think that's really irritating for me. It's the, and I get it, it's the eggshells and it's just the culture today and no one wants to say the wrong thing. And, you know, and I think, Antoinette, you mentioned that earlier where people are going to make mistakes. You're not going to learn unless you make mistakes. I work as a facilitator and I go from one group of young kids and say one thing and it's, okay, that's how they say it. And then, you know, you'll go to another group and this actually, we don't like the term culturally and linguistically diverse. Can you not use it? You know, there are groups I'll go in and they'll say, we're not African-Australian, we're African. You go to another group and say, we're Australians. I'm born here, I'm raised here. You know, and I think you've got to be able, willing to take those risks because that's the only way you're going to learn and right. figure out that it's a very nuanced culture. Everyone is different. You know, not all Muslims are the same. Not all Black people are the same. Not all women are the same, everyone's very nuanced. And if you're not gonna, you know, have an honest conversation respectfully and be willing to take risks, then, you know, you're not really gonna get to the meaty stuff. Um, great, we have time for probably a couple more questions. So if anybody has anything that they've been sitting on and really want to ask, um, please shoot. Uh, James, do you have, um any additional comments you want to make? Uh, I know that we have that hit list that's going to be sent out, you know, some pointers for, um, you know, good storytelling um, when it comes to reporting on diverse communities. Do you have, like, your, your, your top two, like if people were only to take two things away from this, what what, what would it be? Oh, look, uh, thanks, Antoinette. I, I, I think it's really about the things, the themes we've, you know, hit a number of times tonight about respect, face-to-face -face interaction, you know, getting to know people as much as possible, um, understanding that um, I, I think that everybody, everybody has an incredible story to tell if you've got the time to, to listen and hear it. And, you know, we've all, um, we've all been shaped in certain ways. I mean, I, one thing that was really striking to me uh, interviewing Noor and other people from the high rise was 
just the incredible complexity of life in the flats and um, you know the 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 way people ate, the way people studied. I mean, you know, Noor talked about the way, you know, uh, when he was growing up, no one had much money. So often you'd be doing your, your homework on the floor, sitting cross-legged. Um, there'd be uh, an elderly gentleman who would turn up once a week for dinner and he would just be brought in for a meal. And, uh, you know, there was no invitation. There was no, you know, and, and then Noor went to Northcote High School where where people, where a friend would say to him, look, my mum said you can come around for dinner next week at five o'clock uh, or for, 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 for a playtime, you know, at five o'clock next week. And he's thinking, why do we have to plan this? Where I grew up, you know, people just would just, you know, go and knock on the door. And so, so what was... It was like the deeper you go into that community and into that, those um, into the high-rise towers, the more complex and the more interesting they became in terms of sport, in terms of food, in terms of relationships, in terms of how those communities related to their home countries. It was a big issue. Nor was it like, you know, the 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 you know like your your dad with this set up for his media, but then you know, the, the younger people doing it in a different way. And all of those things are really interesting, you know, mm-hmm. and they are, so, so it's about, you know, the detail is, is so interesting. And if you can build those relationships and focus on the detail of life, I, I think there are really powerful stories that will, that will give us a richer understanding of ourselves. And James, there's another, another question for you in terms of the photographer that worked on that um, series with you, um, you know, how closely did you work together? Because often, you know, images, particularly in our digital world, images can often tell a whole story or um, really shape a story. How important was your collaboration with the photographer and how did that work? Yes, the, um, the, the photographer did a great job and I'm, I'm embarrassed to say um, his name has escaped me. I don't know him personally. He, he uh, took photographs for The Guardian. Do you remember, Noor, his name? He, Chris he, Hopkins. Chris Hopkins, yeah, well done, well done. He did a great job, and in some ways, Nora is better placed to speak than I am because I didn't go out with him. Often, as a journalist, you'll know this, Antoinette. You go out with um, cameraman or photographer, and you work together. You know, and the photographer can be a really helpful partner in the process because um, you know they can, you know, they ask you questions, and while they're mm. taking photos, you know, you, you can be sort of scouting around, but. Nora, I'm interested to hear from you. I mean, your experience with Chris and the photos he took, because he he took some terrific shots, I thought. Oh, he absolutely did. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've never had anyone take my photos. I'm barely on Instagram and I'm very self-conscious. And um, he got in touch, we made the time. And he ended up having to take the pictures quickly. Like you said, the article was changed around the deadline. Um, and it was during the lockdown. So he actually had to come down, meet out mm-hmm. the mall. Uh, and we were standing on the main road right where I grew up and, you know, he's got a light on me and it was a bit awkward, but really nice guy, great guy, um, you know, had a lot of conversation, told me about other projects he's worked on. And Did you have a, did you have a look at the photos over his shoulder to get an idea or were you just, did you just see it when they were published? He seemed to know what he was doing. Uh, <laughs> he took a lot of pictures, but he did take pictures again for uh, a follow-up article that recently was published as well. So we met up then. And he actually gone back to creating contacts and networks. He texted me this morning and said, hey, because the last time we met, he was talking about something and he mentioned the Wakely Foundation. And I said, oh, I'm actually doing a thing, you know? And so we had a whole conversation about it. So he texted me this morning saying, hey, I'll be watching it today. Good luck, you know? So going Well, there's back- a good example of, you know, keeping your contacts and building on your relationships and... Um, well, I think that's a nice a nice note to end on. Um, thank you so much 
um, for your time and your expertise, Nord, for your passion, James, for who you just bring so much um, integrity and expertise to our craft. Um, and, you know, one thing I've learned just from listening to you, the art of listening, the art of listening for three and a half hours. And I just don't think we're necessarily doing enough of that. Uh, for those who have joined us, uh, you will receive an email from the Walkley Foundation um, in the next few days. It will have, a, um, it will have uh, some more information about the session, which uh, the next month's session in this series. Um, and you'll also get more information about when, when and where you can get this recording. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, enjoy the rest of your evening. And Antoinette, thanks to you for a great job as well. Don't worry. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you all. It was a pleasure. Thanks, everybody.